Hello, and welcome to our Institute for Government live event, Hitting Net Zero, How the Government Can Decarbonise Homes. Uh, we're really pleased to bring you this important and timely discussion um, as we wait for the government's imminent heat and building strategy. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners, Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks, who have helped us put this event on today. And I'm really delighted to introduce our incredible panel. Uh, we're joined by Lord Callanan, the Minister for Business, Energy and Corporate Responsibility at Bayes. Chris Birchall is the Managing Director at Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks Distribution. Gillian Cooper is the Head of Energy Policy at Citizens Advice. And Guy Newey is the Strategy and Performance Director at the Energy Systems Catapult. Throughout this event, you'll have the opportunity to put questions to our panel and uh, I would invite you to put them in the Q&A box. Uh, if you don't have questions, but you see others that you like, uh, please up like them and we'll try to get to those. Um, and that would be good. We really want to hear from you. So we are here today to think about the challenge of decarbonising homes. The UK has some 30 million homes, uh, which account for about 15% of domestic emissions at the moment. And that level has stayed fairly flat and may even rise a bit in the near future. Many of these homes are old, uh, reliant on gas or oil boilers. They're too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. And analysis by both the CCC and the Office for Budget Responsibility has shown that decarbonising homes is one of the trickiest areas of the net zero challenge. There are going to be substantial upfront costs and fewer long term savings than could be found in other sectors such as transport or electricity production. But there are potential benefits here. Changing how we heat our homes could not only help us hit the net zero target, but also make them more resilient and more comfortable to live in. But doing this is going to require a substantial investment in infrastructure, both physical, such as transmission grids, heat pumps, heat networks and the like, but also investment in skills, technology and business models which enable this transition. <clears throat> and given the nature of this challenge, the imperative of ensuring that the uh, transition is a just one, accommodating people's different needs and resources, will have to be a priority. So without further ado, I'd like to turn to our panel and uh, Lord Callanan, thank you very much for being here. How will the government use its upcoming heat and building strategy to realise its ambitions and deliver the infrastructure needed to decarbonise homes? Well, good afternoon, Marcus, and <clears throat> thank you very much indeed to the Institute for Government for inviting me to join this discussion today. Uh, so the heat and building strategy covers an immensely important policy area, as you've, you've outlined, and one that is, uh, I can tell you, right at the top of the government's agenda. So as alluded to already, the challenge that we face, as you've said, to decarbonise the nation's 30 million buildings is quite simply fairly monumental. They currently account for roughly one third of our emissions. Net zero is now a legal obligation by 2050. It's the most ambitious target in the industrialized world, and it does necessitate nothing short of a green industrial revolution. Now, as a government, we've uh, already set out the Prime Minister's 10 point plan for how we intend to, to start to deliver this revolution. And of course, the heat and building strategy forms an integral part and we'll set out the actions that we will take for reducing emissions from buildings. Of course, we need to ensure that such a plan is detailed, it's robust, it sets us on a credible path to net zero, and it will evidence how we need to change the package of policies that will enable it and our longer term plan to utilise research and innovation to make us a true world leader. 
it will detail things such as the heat pump first to new builds. Uh, it will detail the fabric first approach to improving all homes where, of course, the starting point is to tackle the building's energy efficiency. Uh, unfortunately, because the plan is not uh, published yet, I hope people will appreciate uh, I can't talk about specific individual policies uh, ahead of its publication, but I can talk about how the government is approaching the major decisions on infrastructure that we will face. So we're clear, firstly, that there's no single silver bullet. Decarbonizing buildings will require a range of technologies and a range of solutions. So it's not just a case of saying whether you prefer electrification or hydrogen or heat networks. There's no single answer. We have to progress in fact all three. And that's why we have set uh, ambitious targets for this decade. Uh, the Prime Minister said we want to see 600,000 heat pumps being installed a year. We're currently installing about 30,000, so that's a, a massive leap. We're doing hydrogen trials on a village scale, and we have a green heat network fund. At the same time, uh, we are already starting on an ambitious retrofitting programme. Uh, should perhaps tell some of the protesters on the M25 what's already underway. The first wave of the £3.8 billion Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, which was a manifesto commitment that was launched this year, as was the Home Upgrade Grant Scheme. The Local Authority Delivery Scheme is you know, pretty much behind the scenes, providing already 500 million for low-income households, saving them money on their energy bills, at the same time as helping us to drive to net zero. Um, my officials are working directly with the supply chain, delivering these projects on the ground, and we are seeing, in fact, the first signs of the green industrial revolution that we promised and that we all want to see. Um, to take an example, just last week, uh, they spoke to Eclipse Energy, whose managing director told us how his workforce has more than quadrupled in a matter of months with a plans to expand further still. He was proud to have created so many job opportunities, in his case across Yorkshire, and explained how they are regularly bringing us on new apprentices, new trainees, uh, learning the new skills that we will need. And it's a microcosm of what's happening all over the country. There is so much both planned and underway to deliver on the huge body of work that we know is in front of us. So the heat and building strategy will be an attempt to weave these various moving parts, creating a single, coherent, robust narrative on how we plan to decarbonise our buildings. We do appreciate the scale of the challenge and we're looking forward to set out as soon as possible exactly how we will work together, consumers, businesses, industries, local and central government to rise up and meet that challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much too. I, I think the thing that is genuinely fascinating to me about the, the, the buildings challenge is that lack of a silver bullet. It's not about we've just got to get EVs going. It's not about we've just got to get more wind farms. It's you've got to have all these different local solutions and the way you've got to work at so many different levels, you know, with the public and the private sector is fascinating and, and that's really encouraging to hear. I think that leads me quite nicely um, to my next panelist, which is is Chris. Um, having, you know, heard that, what are the biggest challenges that firms like SSEN face when approaching both the opportunities and the challenges of home decarbonisation and how does the scale of what needs to be done affect those? Yeah, thank you, Marcus, and, uh, and, and thanks also to the Minister. I, I think it's very helpful and really welcome to, to hear what the Minister had to say, because it, 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 there's no doubt we have really clear 
um, policy in terms of targets and ambitions uh, in this space. Uh, no doubt about that. I think that's really welcome. I think it's 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 great to position the UK uh, in such a progressive manner. What's clearly needed now, and and and, and hopefully what the minister was describing in terms of the imminent um, heat and building strategy will, will deliver that, is that we now need to create the conditions for successful execution there. If just as an illustration, uh, the minister gave us some numbers in terms of the challenge, uh, just specifically around heat for us, um, we have around 16,000 heat pumps in our two network areas today. By the 2050 deadline, that needs to be two and a half million. And the trajectory that we take there, um, you know, could can be debated in terms of how fast you go and how fast you move. But that's that's the challenge. And we're setting out now a, a, a business plan that we'll be submitting to the regulator this December, a final business plan uh, for the for the period of 2023 to 2028. And that's a huge opportunity that we cannot miss to get right. And based on what we know today, uh, that business plan will be targeting facilitating around 800,000 heat pumps in that five year period. Now, that number could be up or down in reality, in practice, of course. Uh, and indeed, um, uh, the CCC thinks perhaps we should be going a little bit faster than that. But whatever the, whatever the actual number becomes, there is a clear need for strategic investment in our networks. And there is a clear need for the arrangements and the regulatory arrangements and the regulatory conditions to enable an agile price control so that we as the network operator can respond in the right time to consumers. And our aim, our target has to be that we enable people and businesses to connect when they want to and when they need to, uh, so that we are, we are an enabler rather than a constraint. And that takes you to the operational challenge. That's the second point I'd like to make of three really, uh, Marcus, if I can. Uh, and that is um, how we structure and approach the delivery of that challenge and the phasing and the trajectory. Um, we need to have really clear kind of line of sight uh, in terms of the plan. Um, and we need to develop a plan that creates efficiency in delivery. Uh, really where I think we need to be is delivering a just-in-time arrangement for anyone that was looking to connect. Just-in-time that is well-structured and well-planned so that it is most efficient for customers and delivers value for money for customers. We must avoid a haphazard approach uh, whereby it's sort of as and when we want it sporadically, because no doubt we will then have to go back to the network multiple times and that won't be efficient for customers uh, in the long run and the intergenerational challenge that we have. And I think local authorities have a really key part to play in that with us. Uh, I think they need to be supported uh, with resource and skills and capacity, and we would we need to be supported to be able to help them uh, with that. And we that's why we strongly advocate at SSE um, the development of regional roadmaps for heat decarbonisation so that we can plan uh, effectively a cost-effective transition. And that's the, that leads me to the third quick point I'd like to make, Marcus, if I may, which is in terms of considering that transition, and the minister alluded to it, this needs to be just, it needs to be fair as well. So part of our role is to make sure that we are delivering just in time, we're not uh, wasting money, we're not uh, uh, wasting money for customers or creating stranded assets, but we also need to make sure that in that efficient delivery of investment, that we protect customers uh, that are in vulnerable circumstances. We have 28% of homes in our Scottish network that are in fuel poverty and 9% in our southern network that are in fuel poverty. And a significant proportion of our customers are off the gas grid as well, 37% uh, in, in our Scottish network. That's a significant number of, of customers. So we need to make sure that as we're transitioning, um, the costs that, that will be inevitable here are allocated and shared fairly, and that those that are least able uh, to pay are not burdened. And uh, with that, I think, you know, as well as considering just transition from a vulnerable 
vulnerability perspective, there's also huge opportunities, as the minister outlined. And I think if we can plan and execute the journey and the transition uh, around heat decarbonisation effectively, then we'll optimise the number of jobs that we can create as well. So smoothing the supply chain, smoothing the demand will allow visibility and transparency and we'll be able to maximise. I think I read one report suggesting that up to 1.7 million jobs could be created. So the case study that the minister alluded to is fantastic. There's much more where that came from, I think. Um, and we, it's really incumbent on all of us to make sure we maximise that opportunity for society. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I really appreciate how you sort of encapsulated both you know the sort of the, the genuine sincerity of the ambition and how we could realize it but also sort of the crunchiness of some of the challenges that are inherent to this and and the sort of you know the uh, the forward-looking approach you're taking was just is really interesting to hear about and uh, also i feel like uh, having uh, looked at some of the questions we've got coming in i feel like you are preempting some of uh, what people are asking and i, I would encourage our audience uh, to keep putting those questions in because we've got some great ones so far. It was uh, helpful also that you finished on Just Transition because that leads me uh, to our next panellist, Gillian. Um, I, I wonder if you would like to sort of react to that or just um, more generally sort of think about what policies do we need to ensure a Just Transition um, as we upgrade both owner-occupied and rented homes and the social housing sector to make sure that this is uh, an equitable process for all? Sure, thank you, Marcus. Um, so the net zero transition is going to be a hugely complex infrastructure. And when you think about the fact that we're requiring tens of millions of households to make sort of three different types of changes to their homes, um, we want them to improve the fabric of their homes to make them more efficient. We want them to be installing new low carbon heating systems and we want them to adapt the way they use energy in their homes by taking up new smart product products and services. So as the statutory consumer advocate, Citizens Advice has done a lot of monitoring work of the issues people contact us about, as well as research. And we think there's a couple of priorities that the government has absolutely got to get right in, in both its net zero strategy and the heat and building strategy in order to build that public trust and confidence in the transition. And the first is that we think that the current system of consumer information protection and support who want to make these changes to their homes isn't fit for purpose for the challenges we've got ahead. So our research found that about 79% of people are willing to change to low carbon heat, but three quarters of them think that they're going to need advice or financial support to make that change. And beyond the cost barrier, the two biggest barriers um, that sort of can prevent people from being able to take action is the complexity. Because right now the process is too time consuming, it's confusing, it's stressful for people looking to make these types of changes. It's hard to figure out what's the right type of technology for your home, how do you find the reputable installer and what order should the work be done in? And you shouldn't have to be a climate expert to understand the type of changes you need to make to your home. So we need to make this much simpler for people. And that means ensuring that people can access personalized independent advice and support when things go wrong. Um, you shouldn't have sort of 10 similar accreditation schemes. Let's, let's have one scheme that covers everything. Um, and we definitely need a range of finance and funding options, including grants for people on low incomes. These changes are going to be complex and people are going to want reassurance throughout the entire process of making the, making the upgrades. The second thing is that things go wrong too often. Um, so too many people right now are experiencing problems. There's sort of dodgy installations. The technologies aren't working as expected and you can face difficulties in fixing things when they do go wrong. And something that really damages consumer confidence is people finding out that the protections they thought they had don't exist in reality. 
And so right now people can have more protections buying a mobile phone contract than making, when making energy efficiency improvements to their homes and thinking about the complexity of the changes, the cost, the disruption, then this doesn't feel right. So there needs to be a shift in how these markets are regulated because if we can't get it right for people, they aren't going to be inspired to make these changes to their homes. Um, and I think that is particularly important when we think about the just transition because, you know, obviously we must be protecting those who can least afford it from the cost of tra transition. But getting consumer protections right and building in fairness are both areas where we should be learning the lessons from the regulated energy market. Because if you've got too many people out there who perceive the market to be too complicated or feel that they're not able to benefit from it, then you've got a problem because you're going to be leaving behind key segments of the population who are currently underserved by today's energy market and they really need the benefit of the better prices and the warmer homes that the net zero transition is going to deliver. You know, that's people on lower incomes, people with more limited digital skills, people living in the private rented sector and those in fuel poverty. And one of the key challenges we, we you know, we're dealing with at the moment is the sort of the growing energy affordability crisis. We're about to head into a really challenging winter with the withdrawal of the universal credit uplift and a significant rise in energy prices. And the government's net zero policies have sort of got to start leading the way in terms of getting this right so we can ensure both a just transition and ensure we're able to sort of get the public on side and keep the public on side over this long journey that we're going to be making. Thank you, Gillian. That was really interesting and definitely one of the points we've we've raised uh, with all our net zero research is the, the importance of public consent in this process. And I think uh, when it comes to homes, that's, you know, paramount. Um, Guy, if I could come to you um, finally uh, as our sort of resident technology expert, one of the things we've heard a lot about is the sort of the range of technologies um, involved in this process. What I would like to sort of um, perhaps hear from you is sort of your views on how the heat and building strategy might need to go further than the hydrogen strategy or indeed other strategies in setting a direction for the whole of the UK with respect to what the future energy mix in homes looks like, you know, the balance of hydrogen versus electricity or other things like that. Guy, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. Um, I'm a bit suspicious of the uh, the idea that, uh, that that we can be very, very specific on what we think the balance between the different uh, technologies is over in 20 years uh, time, mainly because we'll get it absolutely wrong. I mean, we've been on a similar uh, panel event uh, 15 years ago and somebody sat there and said, oh, I think offshore wind is going to be, a, you know, X price. Uh, in fact, I was on some of those panels and I said, that's nonsense. It's never going to be that cheap, etc. You know, technology uh, and uh, innovation has uh, as the element of surprise, both on the upside and on the downside, uh, sadly. So um, keeping optionality is uh, is 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 really in, in important and it's you know it's not kind of surprising that there wasn't that level of detail in the um in the uh can you can you sorry can you see me my camera is on but just got a message right sorry just got a message saying like my camera was off okay thank you um so uh yeah it's not surprising you didn't have a huge amount of detail in the hydrogen strategy it's worth saying how far hydrogen has come as a when we did the clean growth strategy i was inside government at the time um and heavily involved in it and uh, i think there's about 
two paragraphs on hydrogen when we did it then. It's only four years ago. And now because of the switch, which is zero, you're thinking about, you know, how do we create a 200 terawatt hour, 300 terawatt hour system in a uh, low carbon hydrogen system in, in 30 years. That's an extraordinary change. So it's not surprising you have the most detail. The key thing that I think we're all looking for in the, the heat and buildings strategy is enough of a signal for some of the brilliant innovators that, that we work with and who are desperate. Uh, uh, Lord Callanan talked about one one example, but there's loads of other companies in this space who are who are desperate to uh, to desperate take advantage. Um, and what, what might be the checklist that, that they that they go through when they're looking about, you know, whether they're going to make the investment in the jobs and skills that we need. But the key fundamental point, and we, uh, it's, it's great to hear Gillian uh, say it, because I often think when we're debating this from a policy point of view, we don't think about the most important thing, which is not about the technology choices, but it's about the consumer experience. Probably more than any bit of the uh, of the transition and we can talk you know some of the numbers Chris was giving is kind of staggering change that potentially we're talking about in terms of uh, what, what's going to happen on the on the on the networks but that is not going to happen if consumers don't have a good experience and that means we need to create the environment where uh, 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 companies are coming up with propositions that work really well that we've got the skilled people uh, and enough of them to do a really good uh, heating uh, experience particularly when you're talking about electrified heating um because it, if it works great it works great but if it if it, if it doesn't work then uh, um then uh then then you know then it, it can be a bad experience for consumers um there's no reason why i can't do that you know it's incredibly common technology and huge other number of markets across the uh, across europe in, in in particular um but but it's it's relatively new in the uk uh, context um, uh, and you know it needs to be easy for people it needs to be super easy for people because most people you know want to do the right thing but um, uh, but they, they haven't got time for that so what kind of conditions do we need in the heat and building strategy uh, to come up with so first of all we've got to get the set of incentives right at the moment you know the way that we load costs between gas and electricity uh, uh, is is you know disadvantaging. So you know you've 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 really got to be a kind of green uh, early adopter to 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 want to switch it, even with some of the uh, subsidies areas. And you know certainly the innovators we work with, whether it's you know uh, Sunamp or Parity Projects or Cero or uh, the minister mentioned Eclipse. You know there's loads of great companies working in this space. That's the one thing they're thinking is like give us a fair chance to compete. Uh, on a on a level playing field, thinking about carbon costs, etc. So I think that's one thing that has to happen, as well as thinking about who the losers are from from there and how you might manage. Um, absolutely, have to have this missing piece of uh, of of the jigsaw, which is about the local delivery. It is these questions are locally uh, specific. The potential for hydrogen, the state of the building stock, the potential for heat networks. These are local conditions and, you know, I, I imagine across Chris's different parts of his network, they're very different uh, solutions depending on those questions. And that's a missing piece of the infrastructure at the moment, a missing piece of the uh, funding to some extent, although there has been great steps forward with things like hubs, uh, etc. But it's still we still we still haven't worked out that settlement, frankly, between national and local. And that's particularly uh, 
uh, important. And yes, we're going to need some sweeteners at first, right? I think long term you want to get to a regulatory uh, or, or price driving uh, the decisions in the in the market to un to identify that technology choice you talked about uh, at the start. But we're probably not there yet. So you know, one of the big question marks that uh, Lord Callanan and all the government will be thinking about is you know how much upfront support will there be. Um, for low carbon heating in the spending review. And I'm sure he'll satisfy all of us in, uh, in six weeks time, uh, recognising how, how how tricky that be. But that's the right, you know, as always with Z-Thing, it's the right balance between how much you have to give upfront to help to smooth that transition for all the reasons we talked about with the with the view to it being a long-term kind of regulatory solution. And that's been the, the model that's worked really well in, uh, in EVs, electric vehicles. You know, you couldn't have done electric vehicles uh, uh, when you know G whizzes were, you can have banned electric vehicles when all you had was G whizzes driving around the uh, uh, um, uh, around the streets. Um, uh, you needed, you know, to get mass market, you needed it to the tipping point, and then you give that regulatory signal, and it's a huge boom uh, in, in in investment. So, um, and the final point I, I I just land on, just back to that consumer, and just to iterate the points that that Gillian is making, the consumer protection in this world. Um, is different. And if you're going to transition at the pace you need to, then you need to give people the assurance that they're going that that even if, if something goes wrong, they're going they're going to there's going to be good uh, there's going to be redress and they're going to get the help they need. And that is absolutely um, a fundamental question. And by the way, digital technology can really help you there. You know, we we know, we are through smart meters, etc. We have a much better understanding of what's going on in people's homes. You add sensors to that. You add uh, some some machine learning, and you can actually work out whether heat pumps uh, are really working as well as they as they should do. And you can build guarantees of that and financing. And it's actually an incredibly exciting area for for lots of the companies who want to who want to supply all this this huge market that we're looking at. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Guy. As ever, your uh, passion and enthusiasm for this subject comes through in all the comments you make. Um, we've had some fantastic questions coming in from the audience, and actually one I would like to start off with is uh, from Henry, um, who is a customer of the Green Homes Grant. Um, so the Green Homes Grant is uh, was a scheme that obviously started during the pandemic. It's something which um, I think in our view was uh, well-intentioned, but perhaps didn't quite uh, live up to its promise. I guess my question is, um, I, mean, I mean, Henry specifically wanted to know if any of the panellists applied, but I feel that might be um, a little bit of a niche question. But Lord Callanan, could I just come to you quickly? I, I just wonder, out of interest, what do you feel um, within Bayes and within government generally was your view on the Green Homes Grant? What are the sort of the lessons you took from that experience and, and how are you looking to apply that going forwards? Sure, good question. And uh, you'll hear more about this next week with Public Accounts Committee having an inquiry into it that uh, the Permanent Secretary and some of the, the officials responsible are uh, are giving evidence at. Um, what are the lessons that we can learn? Um, I think from my personal point of view, the, the first one is that the scheme was, we attempted to implement it too quickly. Um, I think there was unrealistic time um, expectation. Um, the idea that you could just inject one and a half billion pounds worth of expenditure into the supply chain and it would instantly all be there to to, to magically take up the slack, I think was probably in retrospect uh, misconceived. Um, and of course, people's experiences, I think, had also been affected by previous government sort of stop start interventions, because of course, when we originally launched it, we said it's a six month program, it stops in 
uh, kind of March 2021. 20, um, so who was going to invest uh, such a massive amount in such a short space to then have the thing fall off a cliff again? So I think we did subsequently then extend it, but I think the damage had already been done. I think the second one, uh, I think also revolves around the complexity of it. Um, I wasn't involved in the design of it. I, I took it over um, when it was already had been sort of put together. And my first um, impression of it when I started looking at it was this is just ridiculously complicated. You know, the idea and, and I think it was designed from the best possible motives in terms of the most uh, effective carbon savings. Uh, and I think that the policy officials who were very close to it look at it in, in that in, in that vein, whereas in reality, we would have been better off just setting up. This is a range of measures that you can do. Apply rather than try to have primary measures, secondary measures, etc. Um, I think they're the big lessons to learn to it. And of course, the other one is appoint uh, <laughs> the best people to, to manage it. Um, and there's still some fallout to, to come from from that. But you know, we clearly the, um, the administrators that were appointed have let a lot of people down. And you know, my post bag, even to this day, is still filled quite rightly with people like your questioner and others complaining about the customer experience that they've had. You know, it hasn't been good enough. And I certainly apologise to uh, your correspondent and others that the experience hasn't been hasn't hasn't been what they should have expected and a considerable amount of my time um, over the last uh, few months has been taken up with trying to manage the effects of that and trying to improve the experience and uh, we have let people down no question i uh, thank you for um, and that's i mean i think that's very heartening and i think that that sort of chimes with what we saw from the from the process but uh, you know the, the the fact that those you know lessons are being learned and being rolled into what will presumably be a much bigger set of programs uh, is uh, yes uh, really encouraging yeah. For instance, right, you know, we're, we're trying to learn, but we are, <laughs> as somebody who's responsible for it, we are going to learn the lessons for the likes of the Clean Heat Grant um, coming up and uh, other schemes for which uh, for which government is attempting to implement. You know, we're, we're making it simpler, we're making it an easier customer experience, we're confining it to you know one or two measures and we're, we're improving the, the process rather than customers applying directly is likely to be uh, installers, etc. So yeah, we we very much have learned the lessons and uh, we, we will make sure that customer experiences in, in follow on schemes is better. I think that's really good. And I think that chimes with some of the points Gillian uh, was raising earlier. Uh, Chris, uh, do you want to come in on that as well? It, thanks, Marcus. Yeah, it's, it's just a brief comment, really. I think um, cle clearly uh, energy efficiency in homes is a, is a massive a massive challenge. We've seen that. We know the volume, the stock is huge. Uh, so it's, it's not it's not going to be a quick thing. Uh, just really reflecting on on what uh, what's worked actually, rather than what hasn't worked, and, and maybe try and take some of the lessons from that. Uh, and I, I think about the success that, that the government's had in the approach to decarbonising generation, uh, the generation side of, of the energy equation. And one of the things that has worked really well, I think, is, is by providing long-term certainty to the market and investors, use it through contracts for difference, then the supply chain has had visibility, it's had stability and it's had predictability. And, and that has made a massive, massive difference, I think, in terms of smoothing out uh, costs, lowering prices, making it more efficient to deliver, um, but also giving some certainty about getting to the outcome. So I think there must be some lessons in there in terms of how can we signal over a long-term programme um, to drive efficiency, 
but but also manage supply chain benefits uh, and then ultimately consumers get the benefit at, at the end of that this precise mechanics isn't really for me to obviously debate but thanks marcus no thanks chris that was really helpful um Lord Callanan, thank you very much for your time. I'm conscious that uh, you have parliamentary business you need to attend to, um, so we really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us. And I will look forward to hearing you uh, again soon, because I think you're joining another event with us at conference. So thank you again. Could I just, before I go, can I make one final point on Please. Uh, John's grant? Officials will kill me for not mentioning this. Of course, I talked about the voucher scheme, which uh, did not work uh, well and uh, the lessons of that will be learned. Of course, there were a number of other aspects of the stimulus schemes which have worked extremely well. You know, the local authority delivery scheme, the social housing decarbonisation fund, etc., have been delivered uh, to time and, and to budget and have worked extremely well. So the voucher scheme, not so much. And of course, that's the main public facing one. But the other schemes uh, have, have worked well and uh, have been rolled out successfully. With that, let me thank you very much indeed. Sorry, I need to rush off, but uh, Look forward to meeting with you again. Thank you too. Um, to continue with the questions we're getting from the audience, um, the most popular question at the moment from um, our regular viewer Anonymous, um, how do you ensure that the approach to encouraging different technologies at the same time doesn't inadvertently lead to them getting in the way of each other? Um, I feel like this is a really good question because because as we said this is one where there's there's so many sort of routes to home decarbonisation. Guy I wonder if could I start with you on that one as someone who sort of has a has a, a sight on all the technologies? Yes so the, the, the first thing I say I, I, I would say is it's well, the, the risk of all the technologies low carbon heating technologies getting in the way of each other at the moment is relatively limited uh, because we're still nowhere near the kind of size of of, of, of scale scale that we need on on any of them uh, as it were but there's going to be nothing more annoying uh, for people in in a particular area if they think oh i've done the right thing i've you know switched i've chosen this technology and then it turns out uh, another area, you know, another technology is coming my way. I think one of the things that's the one of the things that I think is really important to help mediate these um, these questions is is the role for, and it kind of links to the points Chris was making, the role for for local planning uh, in a in a in a particular area because. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a supporter of market forces working as much as anything, but the reality is some of these decisions are monopoly infrastructure decisions. Um, whether you're going to put a heat network in a, a particular area, um, probably, you know, questions around around hydrogen in a, in a particular area, where they can have a bit more flexibility uh, uh, around that. Um, upgrades of social housing, etc. You know, these are really kind of uh, Big, big choices that need to be made. And right now, it's a bit ad hoc on, on how those decisions are made. So we've done loads of work at the Catapult with different areas, looking at what a robust plan, proper data on the energy system, proper engagement with different stakeholders. So you're building consent for the kind of things you're, you're changing. So it's a bit of a mixed economy. It's a bit, uh, which is why it makes it a really interesting challenge, but why a difficult challenge. So it's a it's it's a combination of planning and market forces. You've got to get both of those working. And what that will do is reveal more information over time. And instead of you know, ministers trying to set up this big decision, which is it will be hydrogen or it will be uh, uh, electrification or it will be heat networks or whatever. The, that decision becomes smaller and smaller. And actually, you've had consumers revealing things. You've had local areas revealing their preferences. Um, uh, and, you know, so therefore, therefore there's, 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 there's kind of more choice at that early stage. 
Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think, you know, that also touches on the point that Chris and others have raised about the sort of importance of localism and local approaches. Uh, Gillian, uh, did you want to come in on that? I did. Thank you. Um, so definitely agree with a guy on the role that local planning will play. And I think, you know, it's something we do need to be upfront with the public about as we go through this, that sort of some people's choices will be narrower than others, depending on where they live. And that's just, you know, that's because it's the most cost effective and, and suitable way for, for how the transition will happen. I think the other thing I think it's really important to emphasize is the, the role that independent advice, and that's advice that's sort of free from commercial interests, will play in this transition. It needs to be part of the sort of um, core part of the net zero infrastructure that we build in this country. Um, because again, it's sort of, you know, depending on where you get your advice, you may be shifted down a path that ultimately isn't the right one for you. So I think having that sort of reliable advice that you can get will be really, really crucial to, to making sure that people are making the right decisions um, in the short and long term for their homes and properties. That's, uh, I definitely agree with that. And uh, Chris, yes, can you, uh, do you want to join? Yeah, just a postscript really, because I, I agree with a lot, a lot of what both Guy and, and Gillian have said. I think, you know, retaining optionality is really important at this point, and there's a point that Guy made earlier, but then it will be horses for courses. And and, and as Gillian says, not every area is, is going to find itself with, with the full panoply of, of choice. But I th you know, certainly our role as, as, a, as a network operator is, 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 is firstly, we want to do the right thing, um, but we also need recognise we need to be agnostic as, in terms of facilitating what the right answer happens to be for that local area. The two points to underline in terms of the local, local, localism, I think, in terms of local planning here is one, I think that underlines social legitimacy. It's really critical that there is social legitimacy at a local level and people can buy into that plan where they live. I think the second point is that will also enable us to support with whole system planning. So we haven't really talked about other, other areas and other challenges here, but whole system thinking and whole system planning, again, is really important across vectors. It's not just an electricity thing or a hydrogen thing. There are other areas and considerations that we should have if we're going to drive uh, efficiency and value for consumers. I Again, really, really, really heartening to hear that. And I think uh, it's it's interesting to sort of see the perspective from that private firm sort of maintaining that optionality rather than just plowing towards a single one size fits all solution. I think that's that's really encouraging. I've uh, got another really pertinent question here from Alex. And I think this is one that we're going to be hearing more about is the uh, spending review and uh, sort of future spending on this comes uh, into the discussion. Uh, Alex asks, is the easiest way to decarbonize my home is to go renewable electric, but the cost of electricity is so much higher than gas. Um, Gillian, could I come to you? Because this must be a common problem with a lot of people. The fact that, you know, we we subsidise gas, well, maybe not subsidise, but the price of gas is definitely a lot cheaper than electricity. But we're asking people to suddenly switch the mindset of decades and do everything electrically. Um, how should the government work with this and how should it help consumers make that transition? Yeah, this is going to be a really challenging problem. Um, and this is one where we're, we've, been, we've been waiting for the sort of net zero, the Treasury's net zero review, because that's going to lay out the sort of options. And I think once we've got a better idea of what those are, is we can start thinking through how you make those types of trade-offs. Um, because, you know, as Alex said, the vast majority of policy costs are on electricity bills at the moment. Um, that is acting as a barrier to increasing electrification and things like the rollout of heat pumps. But when you start rebalancing those costs, there's going to be a lot of losers. And 
that process for how you do that needs to be done in a very just way. So you're not further disadvantaging people who are already um, worse off. Um, I think sort of some of the tensions we need to work through um, are sort of only 85% of households are on the gas network at the moment. Um, and there's significant variation depending on what region of the country you live in. So if you shifted to sort of moving all policy costs onto gas, you've got a smaller group of people paying all those costs. Um, and, you know, within that pool of people, there are some regions that you wouldn't want to further disadvantage. So it's it's absolutely it's absolutely going to need to happen in some way. Um, but it's really important and crucial that we get the mitigation strategies right. Um, so we, you know, we don't have that tension about the fairness of the transition and sort of, um, you know, the groups of people who haven't done well out of the current market falling even further behind. Uh, thank you. Uh, Chris or Guy? Guy has Guy. Yeah, thank, thanks, Marcus. Um, I mean, the truth is we are subsidising pollution the way we're, we're the way we're pricing it at the moment for all sorts of sensible political reasons. But on the gas side, there is there is no carbon price and um, uh, it, it, it struggles in that way. And I think it's a really big strategic choice. Back to the first point, if we don't get the magic trick that ministers have got to pull in the heat and building strategy going forward is how do you uh, get the incentives right? whilst thinking about how much it's going to cost the exchequer, whilst thinking about how it's going to work for consumers, particularly most vulnerable consumers. And there are solutions to that, but you're going to have to be brave. You're going to have to make the case for it. Um, uh, and you've got to satisfy, uh, you know, a number of people. You've got to keep Gillian happy and you've got to keep uh, the people who want to invest in, in low carbon, low carbon heating. But, but if we do not get the set of incentives aligned in the right way. Um, and there's lots of papers out there and, and who argue about different options uh, for doing that. But whichever option you put, if we don't do that, we are not going to get 600,000 heat pumps. We are not going to hit CV five and six. We are not. Uh, we're basically trying to do it one hand tied behind our back because you will not get the level of investment uh, in, in the companies having the confidence to, 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 to do it. So if we're not serious about that then i you know can delicately say we're not that serious about climate change thank you uh chris do you have any thoughts on that not a huge amount to add marcus really i think i think i think the key points have been covered we clearly need um clear signaling from the government and with the signaling we need clear incentives but we also need uh, a clear path to make that fair for people. Um, it, it, you, you shouldn't be penalised just because of, of, of your geography in terms of whether you're on or off a certain grid or not. So um, I think it is delicate. I think Guy sums it up really, really well in terms of the delicate trick that's got to be pulled off here. Um, but it has to be done. Uh, and if we don't, if we don't grasp that nettle, then then uh, we're, we're just adding another another mountain in, to climb really in front of us. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. We've had quite a few questions on uh, skills, uh, including one from Simon Bowens, um, which is how would the panel recommend meeting the skills deficit between the number of skilled workers and those needed to meet the scale of the ambition? Um, Chris, actually, could I come to you first on this? Because I guess 
um, you know, you obviously have a view on this because you need people to do things like, you know, uh, build build transmission grids and stuff like that. But also in, in the way you engage with government and other people, both, you know, centrally and locally, where do you see the skills gap being? And, and what do you think needs to be done to both, you know, build up that sort of softer infrastructure of skilled people who can both build things, but also sort of, you know, design the, the business models and everything else that we need to get this rolling? Yeah, I, th I think Simon has alighted on one of the biggest challenges, actually, that we, we face here. Um, growth is fantastic. So it's a great problem to have in terms of the challenge. Uh, but the skills gap is 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 great. Um, and, and it's something that's now we're looking at our, our business plan for, for the 2023 to 2028 period. We see and forecast a significant increase in activity just in our activities alone. And, and just it's very niche in terms of the you know, the energy system is, is obviously far greater than that. Um, and when we're looking at our workforce strategy, uh, it, it's very much around core skills, core engineering skills, but all the way through from, from actually sort of jointing and, and, and putting lines up through, through, through to designing, through to all the complicated uh, processes that we need to put from a perspective. So that scaling up is really key. And that, that is that can happen quickly. So engaging uh, uh, in different places, uh, being more uh, very wide and open minded in terms of how we can encourage people to look at the energy system and sector in a different way for a, from a career point of view, um, looking at how we can recycle roles. Uh, so where perhaps uh, oil and gas uh, is declining, or is there transferable skills that we can retrain uh, and help people to, to move sector uh, and move across? Um, and we're doing that both as SSE uh, and ourselves, thinking about how we do that, how we fast track, how we can make better use of skills, how we can engage young people more actively to, to, to get excited about it. But we're also doing that collaboratively across the energy sector as well. So I think this is recognised to be a big challenge. So um, operators, uh, network operators and system operators are working together to think about how do we uh, present our sector in, in a different way. So Simon is right to alight on that challenge. I think we, we're aware of it. We, we can see it. Um, and there's an awful lot of work that needs to happen if we're going to meet uh, meet, meet the ambition of of not being a blocker, but but enabling uh, all of these connections. Yeah, definitely. It's a perennial problem of skills. Um, Julian or Guy, any uh, guys waving his hand? Yeah, Guy. Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but you know, if if there's a real market there, people. The, the you know the pure the simple pure economist answer is you know if, if there's not a real market there there's no point training uh people uh to uh to do it that was one of the lessons of the uh the green deal uh, as well lots of people in good faith went and thought there's going to be a big market there but it turns out that there wasn't so again you know the most important thing is getting these incentives that said um there is a real challenge particularly around the electrification because installing a heat pump system is 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 a different uh, is a different experience from installing uh, uh, particularly condensing boilers, which we've all got uh, got got used to. It's potentially a low temperature system, and if you chat to uh, heating engineers um, uh, like like we do at the Catapult a lot, they will say, you know, there's kind of a lost set of skills around low temperature heating and and how that works. It's absolutely no reason that's not as good a consumer experience. Indeed, you know. 
uh, uh, underfloor heating, etc., is extremely desirable for some for some people. But it but it you've got to the system in the home has to work, and that's about getting the energy efficiency, the radiators right, all of that stuff. Um, so there is a particular set of skills that need it, and also crucially linked up with the digital skills you need to be able to say right, you know, how is this going to fit with your nests, your tardos, your you know your other uh, kind of controllers in the in the, in the room? Are they going to work together? How's it going to join? up with your EV system you know all of these things uh, the kind of smart home world need to be worked through but again it's a you know potentially great growth area the one you know half of us when you think of the challenge of 26 million homes kind of go well but it's a massive market um, so if you get it right and you give a con good consumer offer then uh, there's, there's there's significant money to be made yeah that's uh I definitely agree with that and actually that tees me up quite nicely for the uh, next question I wanted to ask um, that sort of point about creating markets and sort of incentives. Uh, Raj Patel has asked us a great question. Uh, so they ask, uh, the point about not becoming largely technology driven, i.e. supply driven, when the bigger challenge may be stimulating demand. The two are of course linked, but the public are also being asked to change travel behavior, food consumption, etc. So what incentives and support is needed for households to make balanced decisions? Uh, Gillian, could I come to you on that one? incentives to households need? Uh, so I think what households need in order to, to sort of start thinking about the changes they want to make is some some more clarity from the government about what, what the potential pathways will be. That goes back to the sort of local area energy planning that we've already talked about. They'll need to understand what uh, their options are. Um, Again, it goes back to the points around the sort of independent advice that they'll need to understand what options they might want to take up that are right for their sort of finances of the time, right for the, the sort of the property that they live in. And just thinking about, because with the net zero transition for the majority of people, they're not going to do a whole house retrofit all at once. They're going to be making changes, you know, dri dripping changes over time to the way they live, their lifestyles. So we need to have processes and policies that sort of support people being able to do that. So do one change, come back to it a couple of years later. And that's, you know, that's how we sort of bring people along. We don't present it as a huge challenge that needs to be solved all at once. These are sort of challenges that they're going to, you know, changes that they're going to make along the way and that that will feel a lot more manageable for people. Yeah, I think that, that sounds um, very relevant. Uh, Chris or Guy, any reactions to that? So, Chris? yeah, I, I think Julian made, some, Julian made some very good points. I think from, from my perspective, um, we know we need to, to, in facilitating this, there needs to be some, so, you know, more social awareness. I think generally um, uh, we see that social trends and, and social, the social psyche around this is, 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 is aligning uh, towards net zero, but that's fine. Uh, the awareness is one thing. I think um, the next challenge is, is the degree to which you can signal and incentive incentivize uh, households to do that that's that's okay we've been talking about that within the strategy i think the third point is how do you just make it a bit easy how do you make it easy for people to engage in this how do you make it easy for people to engage in the transition and that that's not just easy from a financial sense that's also easy in terms of both an understanding and how i can apply and how this can this can work for me in in some cases it's going to be you know it's tricky whether you're a homeowner or you're a tenant that, 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 that that's very different problems that you're facing in terms of how you can engage with the energy transition if you're wanting to decarbonize your heat. So so I think I think we, we just need to find ways 
to allow people to engage and, and, and get interested and excited by it, but also then make it easy for them to practically apply and engage that. And I think that that's a key part of the strategy, but it's a great question from Raj. Definitely, thank you. Uh, Guy? Yeah, just 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 briefly, I think just picking up on that point on on um, uh, the Chris, Chris has made about about making it easy. Um, one of the, you know, the way we buy energy is slightly odd, kind of compared to how we buy TV or we buy um, lots of other things in our lives, which are very, you know, we buy the service, as it were. And what we want is a warm home. Um, or, you know, a home that doesn't have uh, drafts and damp and all those things, which, by the way, you know, kind of two thirds of people complain. It's actually a pretty crap outcome if you think about how high our standards are in other areas of our lives. Uh, it's partly because we all like living uh, in in leaky old uh, homes in, in the UK, whereas other parts of Europe, you know, kind of uh, draft uh, drafts would be absolute hell. Um, and of course, that's one one business model that we're certainly looking at the Catapult, others looked at, the more service model for energy. You buy your temperature outcome and you let somebody else worry about how your technology is all going to fit together and how it's going to work elsewhere. And, you know, I think it's an incredibly, potentially incredibly exciting part of uh, what will happen and it might emerge, um, but it will only emerge if... Um, uh, if you get the price signals right, so people can actually make money out of it. Um, but, you know, putting more onus and more risk on the supplier or, or the provider of your heating service um, would could be a really good consumer outcome. And actually, you know, some people would be willing to pay uh, pay, pay more for that, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing as long as, you know, you're protecting uh, protecting the, the vulnerable. So th there's lots of there's lots. It's, it's ripe for uh, innovation. This this sector is. We've really had heating in the same way for a long, long time. Uh, thanks, Guy. Um, so one other area we're getting. I mean, lots of lots of interest in this. Is a point that's come up time and again. Is is around the uh, sort of the importance and role of of local government. Um, so one of our most light questions. Um, says Chris's point about local authorities is important. Does the government have a plan to improve local government capacity uh, given energy systems catapult and others have highlighted the importance of local governance and area planning? Um, I think um, given that the Lord Cannon has, has had to leave, I don't think we can ask whether the government has a plan unless everyone else has any insights. But I guess, um, Chris, maybe if I you know, could come back to you first there, like what is your view on the sort of the role of local government and how I guess as, as a company like SSCN, you know, it's easier for you to engage with central government rather than, you know, 600 plus local authorities. Um, but, but what do you think of the role is there and how can you work with them to sort of effectively enable this transition, deliver the right solutions they need, help them develop the infrastructure they need and, um, you know, see that things are successful? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. I, I mean, actually, you're right. You're right. It's easier to 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 engage with one body than it is 600. But um, uh, I, I think what, the discussion we've had today clearly signals, and and I think there's general consensus that that actually solutions will need to be locally led, and therefore, as an operator. Uh, we need to be able to be equipped to, to be able to address that and engage. I have to say where we're able to do that and where we have done that, 
and working with local authorities to to think about their, their, their area, think about whole systems, think about what the options are for them. We can give them advice, um, but we can also get far better solutions that are far more efficient. So there's a lot of trials and work that we're doing uh, now to sort of test the system, test how this might work in the future, doing some great work in Dundee, thinking about how we can support local authorities to come up with a model that looks across and helps inform them uh, in terms of how they can get to net zero. Uh, we are but one aspect of that, uh, but it's an important part. Um, and when we look at um, working with, I don't know, let's, let's talk about transport for a second. Uh, no, that's not quite heat, uh, heat in, in homes. But when we look at transport, uh, working with um, bus companies and local authorities to think about how do you do that more effectively, um, that's great. The role of flexibility as well. So we can give advice in terms of how you can reduce costs for heat. So we've done a project on Sky uh, where we've taken um, uh, excess, if you can call it that, excess wind power uh, that would otherwise have been constrained from the wind farm. And that's been directed to electrical heat. Um, and, and that's been highly successful. We think that that, that saves a huge amount of money uh, per, per year. So, so there's lots of things where we can play a part and we can advise and we can help local communities and authorities save money, get a better and more efficient solution. We, we, we need to gear up to do that. We put a plan in place in our business plan to say that we, we, we need to do that. Uh, and that's different from perhaps the traditional role that we had 20 years ago. Uh, but if we can gear up to do that, it's a service that I think we need to develop. That's fantastic. Uh, Guy. Thanks. Um, well, to, to answer the question, the government doesn't have a plan on how it's going um, to balance between local and uh, national, although uh, I was at another event with uh, with the Secretary of State, Kwasi Kwarteng, this morning, and he said, hinted that the net zero strategy would start that work, but he said there's much more to do on thinking about how the uh, balance between local and national has to work. And by the way, it's not just government. Uh, Chris, you know, Chris talked about the price control process. Ofgem's got to work out what it's doing. It's kind of uh, flirting with uh, local area energy planning and, and issues like that. And some companies, I think SSEN, uh, uh, right at the forefront of, of taking that forward and actually, you know, OK, we're not going to wait for the regulation. We're actually going to, you know, implement it and see how it works. I think that's really exciting. Um, so, uh, yeah, much more, uh, much more to be done. But this horrible scepticism about the role of uh, local in, in Whitehall. Um, uh, and that's this is not about community energy projects, although they might benefit. This is about practical uh, thinking about your EV infrastructure, charging infrastructure, thinking about what your uh, heating uh, solution might be if it's a monopoly like heat networks. Right. These things have to work at a local level. If you don't have that in place, it will be a really could be a really bad experience for people. Yeah, I, I always wonder whether the uh, the cynicism in Whitehall about uh, local government capacity is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and I think you know given that this has to be as you said delivered locally this is one of the things where you know you just have to give them a chance to you know to fail but hopefully succeed. Gillian can I give you uh, just been looking at the time can I give you the last word on this um, either on local government or if there's anything else you feel like we've missed that you want to talk about? Yeah I think just, so agree with what Chrissy Guy has said in this sense. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm within local government and they absolutely must play a role. But right now there, there are some capability issues that do need to be addressed. Um, and we, you know, I think we are going to need a national framework for local energy. Um, and that's purely because energy is an essential service and we need to ensure that there's some national equity here because we, we, you know, we can't have the good people of Cheshire having much better outcomes than the people of Portsmouth. Um, so, yeah, look forward to the government putting some significant uh, attention to this and sort of bringing forward a, a better plan. 
I thank you. And I think that's an absolutely great note to end on. I uh, apologise to all of our attendees whose questions we weren't able to get to. There were so many good ones. But the thing I would say is that this is not the end of this discussion. We have further net zero events coming up soon. So please stay tuned to the IFG newsletter or our Twitter feed uh, for more IFG live events. And all it leaves me to do is to thank our incredible panel, um, Chris, Gillian, Guy and Lord Callanan. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's been brilliant and I look forward to catching up with all of you soon. Um, until then, have a great afternoon and all the best. Thank you very much. <laughs>